Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. There's a Jewish prayer which Jewish men pray every morning. Jewish women don't, and you'll understand in a moment why not. And it runs this way. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, for not making me a woman. (laughs) And I must say, I appreciate that prayer because The fact is, being married to the particular woman I'm married to is, at least in earthly terms, the greatest happiness. If I were a woman, I would presumably be married to a man, and that doesn't strike me as a good idea at all. (laughs) So I'm very glad God didn't make me a woman makes me able to appreciate my wife in a way in which I wouldn't be otherwise. There's a particular passage from Muleris Dignitatem. I want to talk about the last two paragraphs before the conclusion. And I'll accompany it with the painting of Titian of the Assumption of Mary at the Franciscan Church in Venice. This is the painting. So at every, every second image is going to be a painting. They're going to run somewhat parallel, not in immediate correlation, but you'll see what the relationship is. I'll have altogether seven points to make. The first is the close relation between woman and the Holy Spirit, according to paragraph 29 of Mulieris Dignitatem. Then the prophetic mission of women, based on that. Then a brief paragraph on where St. John Paul seems to have got the idea of that close relation, namely from Matthias Josef Scheben, a German theologian in the 19th century. Then right in the middle, woman as help in the middle of the seven. You know, you have seven openings in your head, two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, and right in the middle, your mouth. So the middle is always important. Then the sincere gift of self, that's another important text he draws on in this passage of Mulieris Dignitatem. From the theology of the body in more detail what the sincere gift of self and the sacramental sign of marriage is. And then Mary and the Holy Spirit according to John Paul and Schaben, but there I'll use mostly paintings. Here, close up of the upper portion 
of the building of, 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 of that painting. Here's the fundamental affirmation that I want to reflect about. In God's eternal plan, woman is the one in whom the order of love in the created world of persons takes first root. See how I arranged this in seven lines? Somehow it's easy for me to grasp things when they're in sevens. So we need to go to Venice. This is a view of Venice from space, sitting in the lagoon, the orange thing with the snake right in the middle of it is the main street, made of water, of course. Here, view of the city from, must be an airplane. But we'll go by ship, which is the normal way of traveling. No sidewalks here, as you can see. If you try to walk on the sidewalk, you'll be swimming. The Grand Canal, which is the main street in Venice. The point of arrival here at the Doge's Palace. Doge is what they call the Duke of Venice. And right behind it, you can see St. Mark's Cathedral. We'll settle in for a little cafe or cappuccino in front of the Doge's Palace. And by the way, if you don't happen to have had one, after lunch is a good time to sleep. And uh, normally the rule with public speaking is you stop when I stop, that is you stop listening when I stop speaking, but I understand after lunch it can be a little bit different. The order of love John Paul says, belongs first of all to the intimate life of God himself, the life of the Trinity. That's fundamental. It has its origin there, not among us. This is the Franciscan church. It's a big church in Venice, much bigger than St. Mark's Cathedral, because St. Mark's Cathedral was, in a way, the chapel of the Doge. But the Franciscans, with their ministry to the poor, built a big church for everybody. And through the screen, the marble screen that's in the middle of the church, you see Titian's altarpiece in a distance. And when you get to the front, it's huge. Each of the figures is more than life-size when you approach. This is what it looks like. And after the recent renovation of the colors and so on, this is what it looks like. In the intimate life of God, the Holy Spirit is the personal hypostasis of love. The Father breathes out love into the Son and the Son into the Father. The Spirit is the witness 
expression of love. Through the Spirit, uncreated gift, love becomes a gift for created persons. The moment Titian chose in this picture of the Assumption is the moment just before Mary sees God. She doesn't see God yet. It's the final moment of expectation, and she is turning, twirling on her feet, as you'll see. The calling of women into existence at man's side as a help like him, in the unity of the two, provides the visible world of creatures with particular conditions, so that the love of God may be poured into the hearts of the beings created in His image. There you have a kind of account in God's providential plan of what the specific vocation of woman is. to provide the particular conditions so that love becomes possible. The apostles at the bottom stretching up, Peter in the middle, to his left from our perspective is John, young, beautiful, James turns his back towards you. When Paul calls Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride, he indirectly confirms through this analogy the truth about woman as bride. When I fell in love with my wife, I was very aware of her amazing beauty as a person expressed in the body. The bridegroom is the one who loves. The bride is loved. Now that's said by John Paul primarily about Christ. But in an analogous way, it's true also humanly. Um, there's a, a beauty and attractiveness about women. I don't think this is simply a statement from my perspective, following the Jewish prayer at the beginning. Um, there's a beauty that calls for love, stimulates love, that is unique. So the bridegroom is the one who loves, the bride is loved. It is she who receives love in order to love in return. I remember exactly our first child in the morning when he woke up and woke us up in the morning. I couldn't even touch him. Uh, he would yell and push me away from himself. He turned to my wife and snuggled up to her and then drank. And then I could hear when he let go of the breast 
and he would turn over and slap me on the face uh, to play. Very different kind of relation. Here you see John, Peter looking up, he's sitting, James stretching. The passage from Ephesians enables us to think of a special kind of prophetism that belongs to women in their femininity. A prophet is somebody who speaks in the name of God with the authority of God. That's quasi a definition of prophecy. It's important to understand what is this prophetism that belongs to women. What we're doing with the painting at this point is going up it slowly in detail, so leaving the apostles behind, we're getting to Mary. The analogy of the bridegroom and the bride speaks of the love with which every human being, man and woman, is loved by God in Christ, because Christ is the bridegroom par excellence. And here you could say, in a certain way, is the church in person reaching the goal for which, which has been intended for us she precedes us. It's very characteristic that it's a woman who precedes us. Christ rose from the dead. You could say, well, he, he was the first. Yes, but he, in a certain way, is as a divine person with a divine nature and a human, more on the side of God, in a way. We are to end up in the place where she is. But in the context of the biblical analogy in the text's interior logic, it is precisely the woman, the bride, who manifests this truth to everyone. Now, this truth, it was that every human being is loved by God in Christ. That's part of the prophetism of women. Here, more of the upper part. You can see going back from her head, and her head is right about in the middle of it, a tunnel of light going back indefinitely, bounded by angel faces. The prophetic character of women in their femininity finds its highest expression in the Virgin Mother of God. That is important for understanding what is meant by this prophetism. The course of her life, her arrival with God, these are part 
of how her life, her person, speaks to us of God. In this image, you could debate, well, what is the real representation of God? Is it the light that comes out of that tunnel of light that goes back and back and back? Or is it the foreground figure of the Father, an angel hovering on his side, ready to simply waiting for the word to crown her, another little angel under God's right hand on our left. He seems to be volunteering an extra crown, and it's not quite clear how, at any rate, God is holding him gently back at a distance. She emphasizes in the fullest and most direct way the intimate linking of the order of love. We'll have to think about that term, the order of love. What exactly is that? Which enters the world of human persons through a woman with the Holy Spirit. That is, the intimate linking of the order of love with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So in her first, you see the intimate link between the Holy Spirit and femininity. Here, a closer view of God the Father. You see how he holds the volunteer under his right hand in check. The other angel, more mature, listens totally and attentively to whatever word may be coming from God. That's what um, That was the essential content of paragraph 29. Now we go to paragraph 30. I gave you the complete list of titles every time, and what we're on is in orange, so you know where we are. Here, close-up of the angel waiting for God's word. Now we are in paragraph 30. A woman's dignity is closely connected with the love which she receives by the very reason of her femininity. That is why I fell in love with my wife, her femininity and It is likewise connected with the love which she gives in return. Not only being beloved, but loving in return. The feminists who critique John Paul 
on the score. They say, well, the woman is portrayed in the first place as the recipient of love. Well, that's kind of a put down. She's passive. What they overlook is the reason why she's the recipient of love. Her femininity, the great goodness and beauty of femininity. That's what underlies the whole thing. See, it's a moment of expectation, of waiting. The palms of the hands are open. There's no fear. There's no ravenous impatience. There's peace. With regard to the truth about the person, we must turn again to the Second Vatican Council. And this is a fundamental text for him that he quotes all over the place. Man, who is the only creature on earth that God willed for its own sake, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. And this gesture is certainly a gesture of relatedness to God, giving her attention, expectation, longing to God in that direction, giving herself. Unfortunately, there is no color close picture that I could find of her face. So this old black and white is a, is a close-up of her face, but it's a remarkable, remarkable face. The brooch at the bottom there. No fear, longing. This applies to every human being as a person created in God's image, whether man or woman. That is, we were made for our own sake, willed for our own sake, and we find ourselves in the gift of self. This ontological affirmation, this affirmation about being, also indicates the ethical dimension of a person's vocation. Not what you are, that's ontology, but what you should do, ethics. Woman can only find herself by giving love to others. Here, the face of God, it's of course very daring to attempt to portray the face of God, but remember that this is only part of the image of God. The other is the light that comes from an infinite hidden distance. The moral and spiritual strength of a woman is joined to her awareness that God entrusts the human being to her in a special way. Of course God entrusts every human being to each and every other human being, but in a particular way to women. It's marvelous how Titian very carefully thought. He, he lived from 1476 that's when he was born, 
to 1577. So he was 99 years old when he died, still painted at the end of his life. And here he encloses Mary in a circle, a perfect circle, the circle of eternity. She belongs already in a way to the divine world, whereas the apostles are below. Who is superior in rank and why? She, in large measure because of her femininity. This entrusting concerns women in a special way precisely by reason of their femininity. And this, in a particular way, determines their vocation. God entrusted his own son to be born, educated, cuddled, kissed, etc., by a woman. So while Mary is contained in the circle of eternity, the disciples are in a rectangle, which is the traditional symbol of earthly reality. Here, an extremely important paragraph in Mulieris Dignitatem. The successes of science and technology and what's more characteristic of our age than that? That is the driving force of our age. Favor some, but push others to the edges of society. That's one problem, but here comes a more grievous problem. One-sided progress can lead to a gradual loss of sensitivity for man. That is, for what is essentially human, if we look at each other as complicated biochemical machines, you lose, in a way, what's most human, the personhood of the person. Here she is contained in the circle of eternity. Our time, in particular, awaits the manifestation of that genius which belongs to women. Exactly because our time is a time of one-sided progress that distorts, deeply distorts human life, which can ensure sensitivity for human beings in every circumstance because they're human. And because, and here he quotes Paul of, about the many gifts, the greatest of these is love. The gift of intelligence, of scientific knowledge, of technological progress, all of which in a way are positive gifts. They're less than the gift of love. Here, both 
the circle and the rectangle again together. If the human being is entrusted by God to women in a particular way, does this not mean that Christ looks to them for the accomplishment of the royal priesthood, which is the treasure he has given to every individual? Priest is someone who mediates, establishes a connection with God for others. King is somebody who orders earthly affairs so they point in the right direction, so they lead in the right direction toward God. A royal priesthood, according to this statement, seems to belong particularly to women in their femininity in a way in which this cannot be true of the disciples. Here they are enclosed in the rectangle. Point three, woman and the Holy Spirit, Matthias Josef Schäben. It seems to me that the ideas John Paul develops in Mulieris Dignitatem are closely related to an author he knew very well, a 19th century theologian who developed exactly this idea. Here, observing in, in, in the middle, right above the, the rectangle of the apostles, there is a line. It's the golden mean the golden mean is an extremely important aesthetic ratio. The way you get it is when you begin with a line, you divide the line at a point such that the ratio of the whole line to the larger segment is the same as the ratio of the larger segment to the smaller. The Greeks used it all over the place, for example, in the Parthenon, in many of their temples. The parts are arranged according to that ratio. Here's one text of Sheben from his dogmatic, not translated, unfortunately, yet into English, book one, and it's usually quoted by a paragraph number. But he also has a development of the same idea in his book, Mysteries of Christianity, which is in print in English. You can also, yeah, in the appendix to the chapter on the Trinity. In a family, the father and the son, this, this is my contribution, but summarizing what he had said earlier, correspond in an evident way to father and son in the Trinity. That's the language Jesus chose, even though we know that God can't be male, strictly speaking. Is there a person who has a particular likeness with the Holy Spirit? Now this is Shaban speaking. Indeed, in the family, 
the bride is not merely somehow an essential third member. She is the third member in a particular way. Now this is if you continue the cascade of golden sections. What I did here is take the top portion of the golden section from before and divide it in the same way according to the golden ratio. And you see that the golden ratio goes right through the knot of virginity in the veil that, or that black shawl, black blue shawl that covers Mary, right above which is the womb in which the word was conceived. And now here's Shaban on how the woman is a member of the family. As the one who represents the union and connection between father and son. And the way he formulates it, this position of the woman in the family, if you're familiar with traditional Catholic Trinitarian theology, each of those formulations recalls typical ways of speaking about the Holy Spirit. As the focal point in which the Father's love for the Son and that of the Son for the Father meet. As the fire and the person of love itself. Now that's said about the Trinity in itself. Now come, comes the reference to the earthly order in which love becomes flesh and blood as it were. And thus, as the bearer of all the functions of love, or as the soul of the family, the Holy Spirit is often described as the soul of the church. In an analogous way, the woman is soul of the family, enlivening, connecting principle. Now, in the cascade of golden sections, if you go up, this is the next one. You can see how the bottom part, the shorter part, ends exactly where Mary ends, and the upper part is God. In Plato's Republic, the golden section plays a key role in the divided line, the so-called divided line, where in each case the lower, shorter section represents the earthly reality and the larger section above the heavenly. So Titian followed out that geometric principle with, with, with great discipline. The next step. Woman as help. In Mulieres Dignitatem, that was one of the ways in which he talked about the mission of woman. It is not good for the man to be alone. Let us make him a help that is like him. 
It's quite fascinating. If you pass a circle through the center of the first golden section, below which is the earthly, above which is the divine, that circle contains Mary. So in a way she still belongs, or her measures are made in such a way she belongs to the earthly and to the divine. When people hear about Eve being made as a help, they say, ah, it's typical patriarchal prejudice, kind of assistant. It's the hermeneutics of suspicion. And the greatest weakness of the hermeneutics of suspicion is its, but we'll first have a picture. <laughs> interrupting here the sentence. This is if you pass the same circle with the bottom as the center, and there you see that Titian in fact arranged the apostles, although they're contained in a square, but the way they, the main figures are positioned, they fit more into that circle James reaches the very top of it, and the two green figures on the side sort of go along the circle. It's infallibility. The main weakness of the hermeneutics of suspicion is its infallibility. It always finds what it is looking for. Here, if you passed a circle through the center of the top, that is a circle around the center of the top section of that golden section, it would cover, of course, the entire area. It wasn't possible to have the dimensions of the painting follow exactly that because it had to follow the outline of that door in the middle of the church, so the outline of, of the painting was fixed. But you can see Titian put a good portion of the heavenly world into the bottom between the circle made by the top arch of the painting and what ideally would be the circle of the golden section in the top part. Let's take two Genesis stories read in the hermeneutics of suspicion. The man is created first, the woman second from his body, therefore the man is first in importance. The woman sins first and passes the fruit to the man, therefore the woman is cast as sinner and seductress. Here you have a close-up of that uh, circle. Actually, that's the, the, the bottom 
with the radius of the bottom, it's slightly different, but it, the two stories turned around and read in the hermeneutics of suspicion. The woman is created first, the man second from her body. Therefore, the woman is raw material for making men. It's clear. You start with the imperfect, and you go to the more perfect, like an artist who gets clay in shape, and then makes something really good out of it. The man sins first and passes the fruit to the woman. Therefore the man decides, the woman obeys. See how, how the method is infallible? It always finds what it's looking for, whatever the circumstances may be. It can turn a story around on its head, and the result is the same. Because suspicion has that nature that it finds what it's looking for. Here is the true circle according to the measure of the golden ratio, where you see how the bottom angels fit right, in a way, in to that moon-shaped difference. So now, let's go to help. You probably have heard these terms, a helpmeet or a helpmate. What is that? Here begins a series of images about what happens in this picture of Titian. God looks at her. That's the first thing to notice. She doesn't see God yet. God looks at her. So helpmate or helpmeet is a recent grammatical error understanding the English of the King James Version. As you go further down, there are, of the many angels that surround her, seven that look directly at her face. This is what the King James Version says, I will make him an help meet for him. As you go even further down, there are seven of the apostles who look directly at her. So you've God looking at her, seven angels as a fullness, seven apostles looking at her, looking at her. That's the big activity in the picture. Apart from her ascending, being taken up into heaven and expecting, longing for union, the, um, what happens is looking. Why would you look at something? Because it's beautiful. That's why, that's the main reason for looking at something. Um, now, in the King James Version, if one reads it rightly, help meet is not a compound noun, but a noun and an adjective. Titian tends to keep you on your toes, so he puts in two figures who might be suspected of looking at Mary as well. 
But the man on the left, the way he shades his eyes, he can't see her, that's for sure. The one on the right, who's wedged there between, where you see only the back of the head, possibly, but at any rate, it's not clear. Here you have some examples of the use of the word meat in the King James. All that are meat for the war, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. It was meat, the father says when the prodigal son comes back, that we should make merry and be glad. Therefore, help. Meat in the King James Version means a help that is fitting, right, or just. Now, here are the colors. There are two reds at the bottom. Mary herself is red. There's a red on God's shoulder. It's like an ascending flame, like a triangle that ends in a narrow red. This is the original Hebrew of a help suited to him, Ezer Kenegdo. Interesting that the triangle of colors corresponds to a triangle of visions, except that when you go up in the triangle of colors, the divine vision goes the other way, comes down to her. Ezer connecto. Let's take first the second word, connecto. That consists of three parts. Ke means like, as. Neged can either be a preposition, before, in front of, over, against, facing, or a noun something situated opposite a counterpart. And the o at the end is the personal pronoun, he. Continuing with the color, Peter sits in the middle and has the appropriate color of a rock, namely brown. I guess he could be gray, but he's brown. So, connecto, how do you translate it? If neget is a preposition, connector means as before him, or like him, or corresponding to him, suitable to him, on a par with him. And if you take neget as a noun, could be as his counterpart, as a partner to him. On either side of the brown is a red. They're slightly different. James is a kind of orangey red. John, a deeper red. Now we get to the second word. So much about connecto, as before him. Now we come to help of about 400 occurrences of words meaning help. There are only 21 examples of the particular noun used for Eve, Ezer 
And there are only four cases, apart from Genesis 2, in which Ezer is used for someone other than God. In all the other cases, it's God who is the Ezer. It therefore has a specific meaning, while the English help is very general. So in English, you can say, I need to hire some help. Housework is getting just too much for me. Uh, I, I need somebody to do the floors and the cooking and the laundry. I hire help. Or a plumber might say, I need an assistant. The specific meaning of help has to be gathered from the context of its actual use. Symmetry continues, in fact. So you have Peter in the middle, two reds, and then two greens. Green is the polar opposite color of red. Seems to be the reason why Titian uses it. Here are all examples for human beings. Everyone comes to shame through a people that brings neither help nor profit. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him. His help seems to be the bodyguard and all his troops. When they fall victim, they shall get a little help, military help, in a life-threatening situation. God says in Hosea, I will destroy you, O Israel. Who can be your help? Interesting, even though on the side there are these two prominent greens, they're counterpoised with, you don't see it so clearly here, it's more purplish in real life than just brown like Peter here. So there's a cross relation that breaks up somewhat the regularity. Here, typical uses of the word for God, of the word help for God. There's none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, majestic through the skies. What is it, the janitor arriving? Majestic through the skies, the cook? Uh, no, clearly not. Apart from the activity of seeing and the relation of colors in the painting of Titian, there are also movements, lines of movement, and it seems to be a curved line of movement going from James, who is the most moved figure at the bottom, through Mary's dance-like pose, and then up into the red of God. Here are other uses. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. You are my help and my deliverer. O oh Lord, do not delay the top part of the movement. Let me go through these here. We don't need to 
look, all of them. Uh, this is, actually the last one is, is kind of interesting. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You're familiar with that psalm verse because it's used in the Catholic liturgy whenever there is a blessing by a bishop. When a bishop comes along and gives the blessing, he says, our help is in the name of the Lord. Everybody answers, who made heaven and earth. It's a very traditional piece of Catholic liturgy. Here you also have a sideways movement that goes through the painting. So the word ezer for help is found primarily in liturgical language, psalms. It's always a personal help, never money or instrument. The help given, the help is given for great danger or need. The help is indispensable. And in most cases, God is or brings help. This is all explained in a fantastic article, Jean-Louis Ska, who was my professor of Pentateuch at the Biblicum. Here you see the crossing of the two movements, the one that comes from the bottom and the one that goes sideways. It's fascinating how there's a lot of symmetry in the painting, but at the same time, a breaking of symmetry to make it alive. So that much about help. You can see, therefore, that the feminist critique of the creation of woman as help misses the mark, unless you want to say it's a put-down for God. The primary use of the word is for God. Now we want to look at Gaudium et Spes 24.3. What's added here is surrounding the figure of God at the top, which in a way terminates the movement from the bottom. John Paul says an amazing thing about Gaudium et Spes 24.3. With these words, the council text presents a summary of the whole truth about man and woman. If you had a little paragraph, a couple of lines long, that expresses the whole truth about man and woman, that would be an interesting little backpack to take with you. In fact, I have all my students uh, memorize that text and I tell them, if you want an A in this course, and I give oral finals, whatever the question may be that I ask you during the final exam, you can give the same answer and you'll get an A. Gaudium et Spes 24.3. It's exactly the same answer in every case, but of course you have to explain how it bears on the question. Here, the movements in the painting on top. There's so much incredible artistic intelligence invested in that painting on every level. And 
what I'm presenting here is just scratching the surface of what can be said. Now here's Gautimitz Bez 24.3. The Lord Jesus, when he prayed to the Father that all may be one as we are one, opening up vistas close to human reason, pointed out a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons and the union of God's sons in truth and love. This likeness shows that man, who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. And at the end, there's a quote of Luke 17:33, Whoever seeks to make his life secure loses it. Whoever loses it will make it live. The dance posture in Mary, her one leg, her left one, is totally straight. The other is not. You see, she pivots on her toe. Here you see the pivoting on the toe, but I need to go on. Gaudium Mitzvah 24 3, it's like the sign of the cross. It starts with the Trinity. The Lord Jesus, when he prayed to the Father that all may be one as we are one, that's starting with the Trinity. And it ends with the cross. It's like what we do in the sign of the cross. We say, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, we combine Trinity and cross. Gift of self and sacramental sign. This is from the Theology of the Body, from the part on the Song of Songs, which is a high point of the whole argument. That's where he comes to understanding what is it that's the sacramental sign in marriage, which on the one hand signifies the relation between Christ and the Church, and on the other hand is not just a sign, but an effective one. If you write hot on a blackboard, it signifies hot, but it doesn't make you hot. If you wrote it with ink that's 5,000 degrees hot, and you put your hand on it, it would uh, sizzle, that is, it would make your hand hot. Fascinating, most of the little angels surrounding Mary are babies. That's an ancient tradition. But there's this group of teenagers, teenage angels on the side suddenly popping in. What sex are they? The little ones are all boys, because you can see a lot of penises. More male, more female, in between. 
To me, at least the one in the middle looks very feminine. At any rate, one of the fascinating things about the church's artistic tradition is the portrayal of angels, because they're not supposed to be either male or female, because they're not bodily. So artists, in various ways, try to hit right between, which is amazing, because in our experience, it hardly ever happens that we're in doubt if somebody's a man or a woman. The text John Paul comments on in that section of the Theology of the Body is this text from the Song of Songs, where the woman says to the man, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. You can set a seal on something when it's soft. Wax needs to be hot to receive the shape, but then it's got to retain it. It's not to say, I guess, the man's heart is supposed to grow cold after, <laughs> after a while and retain her shape. But set me as a seal upon your heart. The heart is inside, the arm is on the outside. The arm is what you do things with. And she gives the reason. For love is strong as death. How strong is death? It always wins in the end. Jealousy, not in the sense of envy here, but jealousy in the sense of guarding what is exclusive relentless as the netherworld. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a flame of the Lord. Some translations say an intense flame because sometimes the divine name is used for superlatives, but the divine name is there. The great waters cannot quench love, neither can the rivers drown it. If one were to give all the wealth of his house in exchange for love, he would have nothing but scorn for it. You're turning me into a prostitute. I offer you all the wealth of my house. I'm sorry, I'm not for sale. A relation of love is priceless, beyond price. The gift of self by another person is beyond price. Here's a black and white rendition, unfortunately no color rendition I could find, of the teenage angels on the side of that Titian. Here's John Paul's commentary. Here we reach the peak of a declaration of love final definitive chords in the speech of the body. I translated it, unfortunately, as language of the body, which is easily misunderstood, because the Italian has linguaggio del corpo. But after I finished the translation, I went through it with a Polish student of ours in Austria, 
and he pointed out that speech is really the better translation because it's a particular word you say with your body in the sacramental sign of the gift of self. I'm yours, you're mine. That's it's particular words, it's a speech, not a general symbol system. In the light of these words of the woman, we find the closure and crowning of everything in the Song of Songs that begins with the metaphor of the garden closed and the fountain sealed. A couple of chapters before this passage, the man says to the woman, you are a garden closed, a fountain sealed. John Paul interprets that as the man recognizing the woman as master of her own mystery. The mystery of her femininity, which is both bodily, sense of what goes inside in her sexual organs, but more deeply spiritual. The two are very closely connected. She is master over her own mystery. She can give her love, her body, only freely as the master of the gift. And the man has to recognize that. When he, recognized, when he recognizes that, that she is master of her own mystery, it's then that she can say the definitive words, the first definitive words, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. It's interesting, John Paul points out that in the relation between man and woman, the first definitive word comes from the woman. The man is the recipient in the first place of that definitive gift. Still true in our practice. What can a man do? A man can ask, will you marry me? And then he has to wait. And the answer could be no. Could be. Yes, and then that's the first definitive word. Have you run into many situations where it's the other way around? It's, it's amazing how, how deeply rooted that is. I hear the adoring feminine angels in color on the side, but it's not quite as clear. He continues, in the moment in which the bride sister, that was one of the first things he noticed in the Song of Songs, the man calls her, my sister, my bride. And he wonders, well, gee, why does he call her sister? A sister is somebody you don't have these feelings toward, so why call her a sister? And he says, it's very important for the woman to be not only an object of the man's erotic desire, but for him to have the kind of disinterested tenderness that he has toward his sister. 
Not as if, literally speaking, she were his sister, in which case it would be hard for him to get married to her. But. And so she is inviolate. He would violate her if she were only an object of desire. Inviolate in the deepest experience of the man-bridegroom, herself master of the intimate mystery of her own femininity, asks, set me as a seal on your heart. The whole delicate, subtle structure of spousal love closes in its own interpersonal circle. It is in this closure that the visible sign of the perennial sacrament matures, born of the speech of the body, reread, so to speak, to the end in the truth of the spousal love between man and woman. And what's this gesture if not a definitive yes? Yes. I'm awaiting you. Now the last section, and for that section, words are not really apt, so there are only a few pictures which express the close relation between Mary and the Holy Spirit. This is a painting by Titian as well. You can probably guess he's my favorite. It's like Shakespeare, it seems to me. He has the same dramatic intensity and depth. It's called the Cherry Madonna because Jesus is getting some cherries. Mary is holding some cherries in her left hand. Her right hand is on Jesus' bottom. Joseph is right next to them. This is a wonderful Joseph, manly, young. In many images, the purity of the man Joseph is signified by his old age. He's so decrepit, nothing is going to be going on in the middle region of his body anymore. Um, but this one is young, and nevertheless Titian managed to get across the purity of love. There's a sensitivity, a consideration, a looking toward her with care. You see it particularly in this, what's Mary's look? That's the most fascinating thing about it, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. It's more look inside, she's looking more inside and she's looking outside. She's doing both, of course, but there's a deep interiority, resources of love, as this situation of Jesus with the cherries is developing in front of her. Here, Joseph, remarkable face. I just love that Joseph that's his. It's fabulous. And here the very last picture. Um, in a way an embodiment of the close relation between spirit and woman. 
in the person of Mary, taking care of the child, not being eaten up by worries, treasuring things in her heart with resources of love that are deep, that come from the Holy Spirit. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.